everybody. Eve Harrow, Director of Tourism and Community Development for Win Israel Fund. And welcome to what I think is probably around our 30th webinar. Um, had some amazing guests. Tonight is going to be no exception. For those of you who are not familiar with Win Israel Fund, we are the premier organization supporting the communities of Judea and Samaria and the people who were expelled from Gaza in 2005. Security, playgrounds, mikvahot, synagogues, absolutely whatever communities need. We have many lists of all kinds of requests and uh, anything that you can do to join us in partnering, especially at this time. Things are getting a little funky out here again. And whatever you can do to join in this tremendous mission. Speaking of missions, we have one coming up at the very beginning of December. I think it's almost full. We've also been running some incredible day trips. We went up to Itamar in July. In August, I ran two trips, one to Mount Grisim, Mount Parbracha, another one in Gush Etzion, amazing wineries. And if you are lucky enough to be in the land next week, we have our last summer trip, September 20th. We're going to be going to a live archaeological dig just outside of Shiloh called El Rafid. And then we're going for lunch in Ariel. We're going to visit a beekeeper and load up on the freshest honey possible for Rosh Hashanah for the Jewish New Year. And then, of course, ending the day with a, with a winery in Gat Shamron. So it's going to be an amazing day, another trip through the land, meeting the people, seeing the places. There's absolutely nothing like it. But tonight, of course, you are here for a webinar. And I am very delighted to introduce an old friend and really an incredible guy. And I think you'll agree if you're not familiar with him in about an hour or so, you'll go, yeah, he is incredible. And now I will read to you about him. Um, Alex Trayman is CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief of Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org. He's a veteran Israeli journalist, documentary filmmaker, startup consultant, and champion fencer. That I have to say, I didn't know. Trayman has anchored live radio and video coverage of multiple Israeli elections. And luckily for him, we just keep having them. Israel's disengagement from Gaza, March of the Living, and many more events. He attended Yeshiva University. We began his career in journalism as editor-in-chief of The Commentator. He's lived in Israel since 2004 and lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Sippy, who's awesome, by the way, and five children. Alex, welcome to One Israel Fund's webinar. Thank you. And uh, I must say that I, I share the awesomeness with you, Eve. We've been ah. for a long time and you're one of my heroes, no doubt about it. So We are in the trenches together. So the obvious topic for tonight, and especially with you and your involvement in politics and, of course, in journalism, is the craziness here, and that's why we called it under the Knesset Big Top, Israel's political circus and the 2022 elections. So I live here, I'm involved, so involved with what's going on, and I'm confused as to what's, what's happening. It seems like every day someone's starting a party, moving a party, reorganizing a party. The final list have to go in. Is it tomorrow, uh, the official list for the Knesset? So we're right on time. Can you just, like, Tell us what is going on. First of all, this magic number of 61, right? We've got 120 seat parliament. So 61 is the majority. Whoever's got the, the biggest party is going to be the prime minister. What does that look like? Like, is that even a possibility or, you know, or we're just going to go to another election in four months? What are you thinking? I think you'd ask me like five questions. I did. There. That's what I do. <laughs> Which is, which is fine. So I think just for people to understand how elections in Israel actually work is that we don't have direct elections for our prime minister. Uh, we don't have direct elections for our parliamentarians. 
What you do when you come to the voting booth is you see a list of every party that is vying to enter the Knesset. And what you do is you, you, when you get behind the booth, you take a little piece of paper that has the call letters of the party and you, you put that in an envelope, you seal it and you put that in the box and that's how you vote. And what happens is immediately after the polls close at 10 PM on the night of the elections, the counting begins. You have manual counting of every envelope and within a certain period of time, let's say 24 to 48 hours, you know precisely how many votes, uh, each party received based on the percentage of how many uh, votes were cast for each party out of 100 percent is then divided up into the 120 seats in the Knesset. And so usually the leading party uh, after an election will get about a quarter of the votes, uh, which will be good for approximately 30 seats, give or take 30 to 35. Traditionally, sometimes it can be as much as 40. Sometimes it can be a little bit below 30. Um, and that's when the real party begins, because uh, this the party that has the the largest number of seats gets the first opportunity to try to build a coalition that needs to be a majority in the Knesset of over 60. So what they have to do is formulate agreements with other parties that have entered the Knesset in order to get them to sign on to a governing coalition. That's your government, your coalition, and it needs to pass no confidence motions, which will come up regularly throughout uh, throughout its term. So you need to have 61 votes between a number of parties. And then this last government, we had, I think, eight, eight or nine parties in the government. Right. Um, you know, that's and the that's, prime minister, Naftali Bennett. I mean, the initial prime minister, he had a party of just well, originally seven and then just six seats. Yet he became prime minister. It actually ended with five seats uh, by the oh, time it was right. finished. By but, the time uh, all right, the this dust was, had settled. This, yeah. this really was um, you know, a very bad precedent uh, for the Israeli parliamentary system where uh, you basically had most of the parties colluding not to let the party which got the most yeah. votes in the election, which was the Likud. The Likud had 30 seats. That's the Benjamin Netanyahu's party. Um, and not only was he the largest party, but his party had... Um, 13 more seats than the next largest party, which is basically a landslide in uh, Israeli elections. Uh, so the mm-hmm. second largest party had only 17 seats. So it was pretty obvious that uh, the Likud should form the government. Uh, but many of the parties colluded to basically prevent Netanyahu from having a coalition. They stopped him two seats short of forming a majority. And then Yair Lapid, who was the head of the Yesha Tea Party, which was the second largest party with 17 seats, needed to figure out a way to form a government to finally kick Netanyahu out of office. And what he did was he offered uh, Naftali Bennett the only position that he could possibly offer him to get him to leave the right wing camp that he had been a part of for so many years. And he actually offered him the position of prime minister itself as part of a rotation agreement. So so Bennett agreed to become the prime minister with only seven seats at the very beginning. And and so what what I like to say is that... uh, Israel had a prime minister that only 95% of the country didn't vote for. How are we not going to end up in the same mess again? Because one of the things, what did we have? We've had four elections in like the same number of years. And in addition to elections costing a lot of money, a lot of things are held up. I mean, this country has to run. Budgets have to be passed. Things have to move along. We can't keep going to elections. And it looks like, at least from what the polls are saying now, that once again, there no one's going to reach that magic number 61. You have 
a Victor Lieberman, who even though he considers himself right wing, um, and basically I think the people who vote for Lieberman are probably, if you agree with me, the people who are right wing but hate Netanyahu. And so he won't go with Netanyahu under any circumstances and he's polling like six, seven. Is that what's gonna happen there? Well, Lieberman actually uh, has a constituency primarily of, of Russian voters, right? And, and that constituency has stayed with Lieberman for decades. And so they were happy to vote for Lieberman when Lieberman was happy to sit with Netanyahu, which was most of the time until he right. resigned his post in 2018. And he's managed to keep those voters. So those voters don't have an anti-Netanyahu ideology. They just understand and like Lieberman because Lieberman's a strong man, because Lieberman speaks Russian, because they speak Russian, because they like the strong man image. Uh, now, and he's anti-ultra-Orthodox. I think that's right, a very so, big part of it. Well, yeah, yeah. Is that something that uh, Lieberman, you know, Polls. I mean, what happens is that uh, these politicians are doing a lot of secondary polling, third, third right. level polling, and they're trying to figure out like what messages will sit best with the voters that they want to uh, recruit and have vote for them. Mm -hmm. So this I, this issue of the ultra orthodox, basically the Haredim, as they call them, right. um, you know, uh, you know, getting money from the government, not serving in the army. This is something that polls very well with with their community. Uh, and so he he goes on that, even though for many years he sat happily together once again with those parties. Um, so I'm not sure that it's a true ideology there as much as, you know, what it takes to, to get in. Mm hmm. And so you mentioned Lapid. So what's going on with him? You think he, is he would he be like the centrist party in this election? So Lapid positions himself as a centrist. He always refers to himself as a centrist. The mainstream media always refer to himself as refer to him as a centrist. But uh, he's actually the most one of the most progressive candidates in the Israeli spectrum. And so I think it's a little bit of wishful thinking among the and it may be wordsmithing to call him a centrist. And that's something that happens in Israel a lot is that people on the left get called the center and people that are on the center right get called the far right. And people that are like, you know, out to the far right here are called like uh, extremists. Fanatics. You know, so, yeah, right. Exactly. So everything kind of shifts. Um, here, but uh, Lapid really is is the left, and, and I think it's very important to understand that what Naftali Bennett did, uh, and what Yair Lapid did by convincing Bennett to to become the prime minister. Lapid, as you as you correctly noted, he wasn't able to form a government. He only had seventeen seats, uh, and so what he needed to do, what he 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 just wanted to break the reign of Netanyahu. He said, "Let's get Netanyahu out first, and then." You know, we'll have a weak government for a short period of time, but the Israeli electorate will finally get used to the idea that somebody else not named Netanyahu is the prime minister. And so he was very happy to let Naftali Bennett, who actually positioned himself, you know, correctly or falsely right. as to the right of Netanyahu, he was very happy to, to bring Bennett in and make him the prime minister because he understood that Bennett would be weaker than Netanyahu, just because of the nature of who Bennett is versus an experienced statesman and politician like Netanyahu, mm -hmm. and that he would be first in the rotation, that the government might not last, but then the person sitting in the chair was Bennett, and he could just throw Bennett under the bus later. And as you could see, Bennett's not even running in this current election because right. he, 
He's left himself without without any voters because all the voters that voted for Bennett expected him to support a right wing government. And what he did ultimately was bring the entire left wing, every single last left wing member of the Knesset. He brought them into the government and they got extremely important portfolios in the government, including the defense ministry, including the energy ministry, including the health ministry um, and, and others. And uh, they not only did they bring in every single left member of the government, but they broke a huge taboo in Israeli politics by bringing an Arab party, which is actually a sister chapter of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Ram Party, into the government to get barely across the Knesset threshold at, at 61 and then ultimately went down to 60 and then it went down to 59 and then they couldn't hold it anymore. And uh, that's why we're so at now we're election. back. So I, right. So I'd like to focus on now what's going to be. And um, so, all right. So you have Lapid. Now, what about Gantz? What about sure. Benny Gantz? What is he? Is he a centrist? Is he a military guy? How's he positioning himself? Because he's also polling pretty well. Yeah, he's probably polling as to be the the third or the fourth largest party in the in the next elections. And he sees himself as a candidate for prime minister, recognizing that Lapid was not able to form a government in which he would be a prime minister. And breaking the taboo where you could now have a small party emerge as the one with the prime being coming the prime minister. Gantz sees himself as being a possible candidate for prime minister uh, <sighs> just because of the, the current situation. Now, where does he position himself? Um, you know, he was a former chief of staff of the military. He was the defense minister in the current government. He sat as defense minister and alternate prime minister in a Netanyahu-led government uh, before the most recent elections. Um, and what I would say is that he's like the classic Israeli military left. Um, he's not as progressive as uh, as Lapid is on social issues. I think that's really where you see Lapid becoming very progressive on the social issues. But, you know, in terms of uh, I think Lapid and Gantz both would gladly take Israel back into an Oslo style process with really? the Palestinians. And and the proof is in their actions in the previous government. I, Gantz met with Mahmoud Abbas, the chairman mm-hmm. of the Palestinian Authority, both in Ramallah and even invited uh, Abbas to his home in, in Rosh Ayn. It was the first time that uh, Mahmoud Abbas had been inside Israel to meet with an Israeli politician in, in about 10 years. He continues to try to strengthen the Palestinian Authority, seeing them as the partner for security cooperation. Uh, and, and I think that both Gantz and Lapid see the two-state solution as uh, the only solution to the prolonged conflict with the Palestinians. Some of us see it as a form of a final solution, not to put it too bluntly, but definitely a danger to Israel. Okay, so for people who don't want to see that happen, and I don't even want to discuss merits and labor on this webinar because whatever, whatever they do, they do. So now who are the parties that would be the ones to, let's say, uh, do the agenda that most of my viewers and myself and yourself would like to see happen. So there are those who will say that if Netanyahu would just step down from the Likud, we would have easily a right-wing government in Israel of maybe even over 70, because the polls are showing that the young people are moving consistently to the right. These are kids, remember, if Oslo was in 93 and we had these terrible waves of violence in early 2000s. So someone who's now voting who's 18, 19, 20, 21, that's their life. I mean, that's what they know. They know of this kind of situation, that the PA has not been a friend, that the attempted a two-state solution or whatever Oslo was supposed to be failed miserably. 
Um, if you if anybody's paying attention now, there has been a tremendous upswing in violence. In we just lost uh, a uh, an Israeli commander yesterday, uh, killed by terrorists in Janine. And there's definitely a sense that the PA is losing control in Yudava Shamron. Israel's not sure what to do. Do we get more involved? Does it weaken the PA? Their civil war is on the cusp of happening. The question is how much of it we get, the blowback we get. A lot of stuff going on. If in the last couple of elections, we had the luxury, if you were, of not focusing so much on security because things were semi-quiet, now things are really not so quiet anymore. And I'm not even talking about Iran and some of the bigger issues that we've got out there. I'm talking about what's happening right here. So there are parties on the right that uh, a lot of people would like to see. And so it there's no way that Le- that Netanyahu was ever going to step down because of so much sentiment, even of the people on the right, is not pro-Netanyahu. So what happens here? So we're going to have, again, this situation of maybe even with right. A, a right-wing country, it not being portrayed in, in the layout of the Knesset. Right. So there's a few things to unwrap there. So first, another thing which I, I frequently say is that only the voters want Netanyahu. Right. If you if you look at the if you look at the polls first again in terms of the first level polls, the Likud is is polling more than ten seats or approximately ten seats higher than the next largest party. So it's the most popular party in the country by far. When you do the secondary polling and you ask people, you know, who do they prefer to be the prime minister? It's like a twenty point lead. People prefer Netanyahu to be prime minister. That's that's the choice of the people. The problem is that again, you don't vote for the prime minister. You don't even right. vote for your parliamentarians. Uh, and then it's up to the parliamentarians themselves, most of whom are not selected even on a primary. Right? They're handpicked by their party leaders. Like mm-hmm. just just submitted its list for party leadership. Those are people that are handpicked by Yair Lapid to be right. parliamentarians. Right. So. That means that they only have constituency of one person, which is the head of their party, because if they cross the head of their party, they're out. They're not on the list. Right. Right. So so now it become, you know, once the ballots are counted, it's it's up to the parliamentarians to decide who's going to be the prime minister. And they don't care who the people vote for. They They don't care, you know, what the results of the election are, whatever they can figure out in terms of their own their own uh, platforms, their own best interests, whatever they perceive those interests to be. Uh, that's how the negotiations will determine who will ultimately be the prime minister. Now, what do what do most Israelis want? You know, if you ask them, they want a right wing government, uh, right. A right wing government would make the Likud the most left leaning party in a government. And when you do the, when you do the election math that, you know, according to the polls, even in all the elections, this is going to be the fifth election, you know, that block, you know, is, is anywhere from 55 to 60 seats. But if the opposition block, which also includes air parties, uh, can, can prevent Netanyahu from getting to that 61 uh, threshold, then they can form a blocking coalition, which is what they did last time. And it is highly likely that they would do it again. Now, now what's the difference? I mean, because everything is polling basically right along the same lines as it did in the first four elections. So, so what could be the difference makers? So there's a few things. First is voter turnout. Um, voter turnout, even among Likud party voters, was was pretty low in the last election. And in, in one of the elections in the cycle, Likud actually went out of their way to, to fun- go into towns on the periphery that, uh, you know, very strong sentiments towards the right, but very low voter turnout. And what they did was they actually found an additional 200,000 votes 
you know, and just by getting more people out to the, mm-hmm. to the polls on election day, you know, that can that can count for several seats. So if you're if you're polling at 59 seats and then all of a sudden you can find two, three, four more seats. And right. You can Send a, a cab to get the old lady out of her house and over to the yeah. polling booth. That's literally can, what they were doing. It, yeah, it can make a difference because because it is that close. And, and then the other thing is the what we call the Knesset threshold. Right. There's a minimum threshold of votes that you have to get in order to be able to enter into the Knesset. You have to get at least three and a quarter percent of the electorate in order to enter into the Knesset at all. And that's the equivalent of approximately four seats. So if you don't get at least four seats in the vote, then if you only got like what would have been the equivalent of one, two or three seats, Mm -hmm. every single one of those votes goes in the garbage as if it didn't even happen. And then the 120 seats get redistributed. And so if a party on the right side of the spectrum, let's say, was going to get three seats, came close to getting four seats, those three seats worth of votes that all wanted right wing parties to to be in the government, go in the garbage. And then that gets redistributed among the entire electorate. So basically what it does is it sends half of those votes over to the other side. Right. So that. So it's it's not like those votes then go to the next furthest right wing party. They they half of the votes go to the left, uh, essentially. Right. So you know that that can so which and and on both sides of the spectrum, both on the right and on the left, you have a few parties that are polling very close to this threshold. So depending on what actually happens on election day, if a party gets in, that will bump up four seats onto one side of the spectrum or the other. And if one party or another, you know, just falls short of that threshold, that will divide those votes in half and split them up. And, and so how that works out, and you're not going to know the answer to that question until after every single last vote is counted uh, has a major impact on what the coalition could look like after the election. And every single last vote, of course, also means the diplomats, the Foreign Service, they vote a little early, they send their votes in, they're obviously not in Israel. My understanding is that they are the only people who are physically not in Israel who are allowed to vote. Expatriate Israelis living in New York or Los Angeles, there's no absentee ballots. You have to be physically in the country. It's, it's yeah, only the diplomats, yeah. only the diplomats right. are allowed and soldiers. talking about soldiers. Talking about, right. No, yeah. but soldiers presumably Here. are in the country. They just vote uh, in a separate counting. Right. Um, you know, so the number of people that vote, I think it's it's barely a few thousand, you know, in terms of the diplomats and the people that are abroad. So that mm-hmm. doesn't have too much of an impact. But the soldiers votes uh, does have an impact and they wound up getting counted. They wind up getting counted. Uh, after the other vote. So sometimes, uh, you know, and they say that they tend to vote uh, more right wing. That's Mm -hmm. but but until those votes are actually counted, it can it can actually redistribute one or two seats uh, after uh, the other votes are counted. and, And that those one or two seats can change the entire result of the election. Right. Well, what the soldiers votes don't usually do is add to the ultra orthodox parties or the Arab parties because they're not all that many soldiers from either one of those constituencies. So it's usually more of the, you know, either the center or the right. OK, so let's talk about the big elephant in the room right now, which is, of course, Itamar Ben-Gvir. And I don't know if the, our listeners, those who don't live in Israel, were aware, but there was a very interesting event that happened a few days ago at the high school in Tel Aviv, at the Blich High School. So Maybe you want to tell everybody about it and how you interpret what happened there that day. Um, well, 
you know, Ben Gvir in general is, uh, you know, he, he's riding a populist wave. Uh, and what's happened is that people have been voting for right-wing parties, including parties led by Naftali Bennett and Ayala Shaked for a while, uh, and also voting for Betsal Smotrich and the Jewish Home Party. And, and I've got to tell you that, uh, you know, being someone who's followed the right-wing parties for a long time, they, they have been political disasters. Um, they, they can't get along. Uh, they, they frequently divide votes. Uh, and ultimately, what they wind up doing is, is um, you know, they'll give up on some of their values to, to get other things. And that's what we saw with Bennett, you know, Bennett, who always pushed himself and promoted himself as a staunch right winger when he saw the opportunity to basically shoot the moon, as you'd say, in uh, blackjack and become the prime minister with with a low hand. Uh, he was willing to throw out all of his right wing ideology to do that. And so, yeah, ha- you think enter- Ben Gvir might do that? No, I'm saying enter no. Ben Gvir, someone who ah. people understand okay. is is not a traditional politician is someone who's not going to compromise on anything is someone who speaks, you know, his, his piece speaks his word, you know, representing the word, I think of a lot of other Israeli voters on, on issues relating to, especially with Arab presence and relating to settlements, right. you know, he, he really speaks from the heart and people feel that. And, and I think that a lot of Israelis that have right-wing uh, voting sentiments are really just fed up with uh, what they've been offered in terms of political parties. And so basically uh, in an age in which you see all over the world, these sort of like populist waves developing on both the right and left of the spectrum, Ben Gavir is, uh, is, is, a welcome, is, is, is a welcome phenomenon in the Israeli uh, political spectrum. And of course, the, the media in Israel, which is uh, widely run by left-wing elements, Except um, for JNS, of course. Except for JNS, um, I'm talking <laughs> about the, he- the Hebrew, the Hebrew yes. media that that yes. really do affect uh, what people vote for. So, mm-hmm. um, what they do is they they actually trying to use Ben Gvir to to pin a, a vote for Netanyahu as a vote for Ben Gvir because they know that Netanyahu prefers to sit with right wing members uh, of government if if he can. Uh, which would make somebody like Ben Gvir a senior minister in a future government, which Betzal Smotrich just said uh, this week that Ben Gvir was, is going to be a, a high-ranking minister in the in the next mm-hmm. government. But what the but what the left-wing media is actually doing is they're they're actually making Ben Gvir more popular. You know, it's the it's the old adage like just I don't care what you say about me, just spell my name right. They're say giving something. him all right. the attention, and and I'd say that of of politicians that have. Uh, increasing momentum in Israel. Ben Gvir probably has the most momentum right now moving yeah. forward of, of any other politician, even though the, the total number of seats that he commands is still low. Uh, you know, he's the one that has the, the energy behind them right now. Mm-hmm. There, so it was an interesting interview with his PR guy in Makori Sean a few weeks ago, who happened to be really not from the political world, very secular, and has done a lot to kind of tame a little bit the, uh, the kind of provocative the image that, that Ben Veer has gotten over the last few years to kind of mute it down a little bit. But what happened at Blich at the, at the high school in Tel Aviv last week? I, I, I missed that one. I mean, uh, somehow I missed it. I missed what happened. Oh, okay. So what, hap- I mean, so what happened was Blich is known as this high school, which kind of predicts the different elections 
All right. And he goes there and he was greeted widely like nobody expected that. It's just high school in Tel Aviv. And here comes Ben Beer. And so what they did is the um, the principal then invited, I believe it was mostly Roz. It was one of those old piece now guys uh, in because, you know, they want to have balance, which is incredibly important that they do that, who essentially told one of the kids to shut up which did not go down very well, even though it doesn't surprise many of us because a lot of the leftists that I know are fine with your opinion as long as it's theirs. So, but don't really want discourse and don't really want that, you know, that to be the environment. So it was just a very inter- interesting incident. And, and uh, the press kind of played it down to a great degree because I think they were a little bit frightened by it, what it showed um, that this high school that's kind of known as taking the temperature of what's gonna happen before the elections, is going wild over this guy who up until a couple months ago was considered a total extremist, you know, very much on the right, kind of one of these mayor fascist is used more than once in his direction. Um, and it's just, uh, it, it's it's very interesting to see what's going on here. And as you said, of course, the, the, the Hebrew speaking press, not exactly uh, on the right, and manipulating as, you know, as, as happens with press in general, um, you know, so that certain things, you know, don't get out and, and certain vibes aren't out there. So now you mentioned Smotrich. So what's going on with him, with Bitsal Smotrich? Well, he's running together with Ben Gvir in, in the right. election. Um, you know, so he's he at least for this moment. He <laughs> Who gets, knows what will uh, be by tomorrow? I mean, they they're sending the they have to submit their list by tomorrow. But I think Smotrich right. understands that if he doesn't ride the Ben Gvir populist wave, that he might find himself below the Knesset threshold. And so, uh, you know, Netanyahu actually was the one who brokered that the two of them should sit together so that you don't have a situation, let's say three seats worth of uh, votes. Wasted votes. Go to somebody right. like Smotrich and then, uh, and then a vote and a half of those go to the left and that could be the difference maker. Um, but I, I do want to caution that there is, there is a fear that let's say Netanyahu does uh, cross the threshold of 61 with his preferred right-wing partners. Okay, now Netanyahu will have a lot of leverage. And he can go to people like Benny Gantz and to others and say, listen, you can't block me from being the prime minister. I can sign a deal tomorrow with Smotrich, Ben Gvir, and and the religious parties and and make my right-wing government. Or you can prevent Ben Gvir from entering into the government and letting me lead a a wide centrist unity government, right? Uh I'm the prime minister. So, you know, there's... On the one hand, Netanyahu needs to get to 61 with his preferred partners all the way to the right. On the other hand, Netanyahu himself is, you know, many people believe that he's a centrist, you know, when push comes to shove. I mean, he runs from the right. But when you look at his policies over the years, you know, he he's he's maybe a smidgen to the right, but uh, certainly on the Palestinian yeah, issue, uh, I'll agree with more that. to the right wing. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but. Uh, you know, he he has over the years uh, always preferred to rule from the center and not from the right when he, once he gets into office. So there is definitely the possibility that uh, if he gets to 61, that magic number that he can negotiate a, a more centrist government and leave uh, Ben Gvir hanging out in the opposition. Mm-hmm. And all of those voters. And of course, the possibility of restarting this two state 
solution disaster or, or who knows I don't what. think Netanyahu would no? start the two state solution uh, issue. Um, you know, I think that he was very clear. He didn't meet with Abbas uh, at all in the last. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, he also let about- there be rampant illegal building, though, in Area C in Judea and Samaria by the Palestinian Authority that's been going on for over a decade. And that shows no sign of abating anywhere. So that's true. I would of- say like on a lot of those issues, he, he froze uh, settlement building. Uh, that's you know, right. Settlements have not developed as much as they could. And I think that he does that uh, because he thinks that it will anger the Americans. And, uh, you know, he, do- he doesn't want to anger them too much. And I think that Netanyahu, what he believes in most of all is is status quo. And you see him uh, kicking the can down the road on so many different issues. Yes. Okay. So he thinks, okay, the Palestinians are, are grabbing a little bit of land. Okay. We, you know, we're, we're not building as much as we could, but he, he really believes that if you grow the economy of Israel and you grow the military strength and the diplomatic strength of Israel, there will be a time later when we're able to deal with this issue more thoroughly. So he, mm-hmm. he always prefers to take the issue of like not moving the dial and kicking the can down the road and, and changing Israel's uh, negotiating position through strength. And, and if you look at at the country that Netanyahu inherited when he first became prime minister in in the 90s, you know, versus the country that he's he he's he left when he was thrown out of office essentially last year, the country's so much stronger. So that's kind of his operating uh, mm-hmm. procedure. And, and that actually right. forces him to not deal with a lot of critical issues. And, and you can look back at his uh, at his reign and say, you were the prime minister for 12 years. You know, when were we going to deal with these issues, if not during right. the 12 years when you were in office? Now, you part of that has to do with the nature of the Israeli political system in which the, the entire system basically is trying to conspire to kick him out of office all the time. That's the parliamentary system. You have a no no confidence vote motions coming up basically every week. You have uh, members of your own coalition government uh, threatening to bolt at any given time, which can always trigger a new election and, and send and send a prime minister packing. So, you know, for the system is set up that for somebody to stay at the top of it, that they have to not rock the boat too much. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why Netanyahu, you know, picks his battles and, and tries not to rock the boat uh, once he's sitting in the seats just to protect his own, uh, his own uh, Tusik, his own position. Right, but what about his trial, this ongoing trial? I think it's four cases, unless one of them was dropped. Um, yeah, three that cases are good. Yeah. So what? what do you say about that? Does, could that have an effect on the outcome of the election? At this point, it seems like not because uh, I, I, I mean, they have effect. They have affected where we are today sure for certain uh you know and all of the information about the cases was conveniently leaked or broken uh in the run-up to every single one of these elections right before the first election attorney general says we're investigating netanyahu for corruption uh before the second election the attorney general says we intend to indict netanyahu for corruption you know, before the third election, we're indicting him before the fourth election. We're taking him to trial. And all the time during the election cycles, you have little snippets of testimony or seemingly damning testimony leaked to the press mm-hmm. illegally, you know, to try to influence the public opinion. And, and what it's also done is it's info. It's given wind 
to the politicians that don't want Netanyahu to be in power because it gives them the opportunity to say, well, we can't have a prime minister who's who's under trial for corruption. We can't have a prime minister who's under indictment, you know. So uh, even though I, I think what's really important to understand is that uh, is that basically all these trials would not hold weight in the United States. Okay. When they talk about Netanyahu being tried uh, or indicted for bribery, like the definitions of what bribery are in Israel are dramatically different than what the definitions of bribery are, are in Israel. Like in one of the cases, especially the case 2000, uh, where, where he tried to get better coverage in uh, Yidiot Achronot, uh, newspaper, which is a left-wing paper, uh, the prosecution acknowledges that the quid pro quo that he's being accused of, that both sides are being accused of, never took place. Okay, so but the the fact that they discussed the quid pro quo was enough to to elicit the no you know, the the case of uh, you know the charges of of fraud and breach of trust, even though no bribe actually exchanged hands, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, some some pretty famous jurists in the United States, including uh, Nat Lewin, who's tried many cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Alan Dershowitz and others, they put forth a memo to Israel's attorney general before before the indictment was laid, saying that, uh, you know, trading trading uh, regulatory or legislative favors in exchange for positive press is the nature of business between politicians and and media moguls, and that there's never been a case in any free democracy around the world in which that type of interaction was ever considered bribery or was ever brought to trial. So these are unprecedented cases in a a democracy. And and the prosecution in the cases named over 300 witnesses on their list. Um, And you understand that if somebody committed a serious crime, you don't need 300 witnesses to convict somebody. Um, Interesting point. So what happens is that, you know, they just name and call one after the other after the other, because that just makes the trial last as long as possible. And, And when you look also at the at the the way in which the evidence uh, was gathered uh, in these trials and the way in which state witnesses were were um, signed uh, to to um, to testify against Netanyahu, um, th- those practices w- would be thrown out of any court. I mean, there would already have been multiple mistrials. Uh, the The prosecution has forced the I'm sorry, the the court has forced the prosecution to change its charge sheet three separate times already. And in the middle of the trial, which is something that would never happen in a a U.S. court of law, the cases would have been Mm -hmm. thrown out. Um, You know, so you see that what Netanyahu is saying is that this is actually a witch hunt, which the whole purpose of which is to get Netanyahu uh, out of office. And this is this is a it's a very dangerous phenomenon in which you have like a judicial um, political political uh, overreach here in order to try yeah. to take out a sitting prime minister. Well, the fact that our judiciary is uh, very, maybe too strong and not elected is a discussion we've had on other webinars with jurists and with lawyers and the dangers, Moish Coppell, the dangers um, that we're seeing that with especially a Supreme Court that pretty much can do what it wants and doesn't have to answer to anybody. So yeah, so that seems to be an ongoing danger. So there's a couple of questions somebody asked um, what are the biggest social concerns that Israel has right now? I mean, I'll give my answer. I'd love to hear yours. Housing, I think, is huge. I mean, as somebody who's got a lot of, you know, young couples, my kids are now young couples. 
none of whom right now, I believe, own where they live. And I don't know how they're going to be able to because salaries, even if they're good, are nowhere near what the cost of housing is. And uh, it, we do have a lot of land. We have a lot of reservoirs of land in Judea and Samaria, if somebody would put those two things together. So we actually don't have a, a land crisis. We have a crisis of will in the way that I see it. But that's, I would say that that's one of the major concerns. We've got you know, the highest birth rate now in the Western world, but where are we putting all these lovely young people as they establish their homes? And while the economy is definitely stronger, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, there's still a tremendous disparity between the top earners and the lower earners. We still have way too many people um, who need soup kitchens and who are under the poverty line and can't afford some basic things. Fortunately, healthcare is universal healthcare, so there's no such thing as people not getting the healthcare that they need or the education that their kids need, also paid for by the state. But, um, you know, it's definitely food is, has gone up in prices. It has in so many other places in the world and different kinds of commodities. So uh, what would you add to that in terms of the social issues that Israel is now dealing with? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you've hit it on the head. Certainly housing is uh, the price of housing has gone up something like more than 10 percent just in the last year. Um, yeah. And it was and it was expensive before. Uh, and you're correct that it, that's only one major form of inflation that's taking place <laughs> in this country. Uh, you know, it, it, it used to be when when I first made Aliyah to Israel, we used to say that the way the Israeli economy worked is that the things that you want are very expensive, but the things that you need are very cheap. Right. right. And and now what's happened is that the things that you want are becoming a little bit cheaper as more and more product are, are entering the country, but the things mm-hmm. that you need are actually becoming much, much more expensive. Um, you know, people are, you know, when they want to buy cars, there's 125% tax on a car, you know, so cars cost more than twice what they cost in the United States. Uh, the price of housing is, is unbelievable. The price of food has gone up by four or five times in the last 20 years since I've moved right. in. And, 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 the thing is that the salaries are just not moving in comparison not keeping to the pace. Cost of everything right. else. Um, so even though the GDP in Israel is very high, we're really a top 20 economy in the world in terms mm-hmm. of GDP. And we rank higher than a lot of other like very powerful and developed countries. But the, right. like you said, the gaps, but the, the cost of living is, is just becoming more and more unbearable. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I would say that the more and more members of this country are operating uh, in what we call the minus over here, you know, with negative balances in their bank accounts. Everybody is in debt. Uh, Everybody Mm -hmm. is in in debt to their mortgage and to their car loans. And people are borrowing money to go on vacations and just live and to to do weddings and bar mitzvahs. There's no money for that. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's that really, I think, is one of the most most important issues. And and like you said, also wealth distribution that, uh, the majority of wealth is something like 80% of the wealth in the entire nation is controlled by like about 20 families. Quite a few, right, right. right. And so you do have this startup economy and the people at the very top of the startup economy, the ones that that have the exits, you know, the CEOs of companies like Waze and Wix and mm. others, you know, they wind up uh, becoming uh, millionaires and billionaires. Um, but they're the middle class in the country, even though we have access to more and more electronics and, and people are driving uh, fairly new cars, um, they're, they're not, they're not like moving up the ladder and, uh, you know, everybody's struggling to make their month with, with fathers and mothers, both, both having to working. work. So, 
Right. You know, that's a, that's a major issue. Um, but I think that there's a lot of other issues too uh, that we've seen with the, the left coming in and taking over a lot of the major ministries here. I mean, you had basically your health minister from the far left merits party uh, in this election who was in the, in the previous government, you know, when he was sitting in the opposition, he was, uh, the merits party was adamantly opposed to the room, to the, um, uh, the loss of personal freedoms during the pandemic, including the, the implementation of the green pass, uh, right. mandatory vaccines, mandatory masks, uh, things like that. And then all of a sudden he got offered the health ministry and he switches views. And why did he yeah. do that? Because he said, well, when he came into office that he viewed the health ministry to be a pillar of equity and inclusion in Israeli society. And what he did was he, he went on to make some significant changes to the way the health ministry worked. Um, and he did this again during a pandemic, you know, when people are dropping and the hospital system is, is being overburdened. Right. They didn't build one new hospital in the country. But what they did do was change the regulations to allow the uh, the Kupat Cholim, the Israeli uh, the health medical funds. system, health funds to uh, pay for gender transition surgeries. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And and they changed regulations to allow um to allow like homosexual cu- couples to do to have children in the country via surrogacy, right? And right. they changed the birth certificates in Israel to, instead of saying father and mother to say parent one and parent two, you know. So that's that's in the health ministry. Then you had in the in the energy ministry, you know, Israel has in, immense sums of natural gas off of our right. coast. We already have the Tamar and the Leviathan online. Uh, you know, we we have also the 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 Karshish uh, fine near to the Karish, which I'll talk about in yeah. a minute. Um, but they, there's a lot more gas underwater that we haven't exploited yet. And so we had our energy minister was a member of the labor party. And what she did was in 2022 is she canceled all natural gas expiration licenses. Why? Because Israel needs to move to clean energy. And we should be more reliant on, on, on solar energy and on wind. And so we don't need natural gas. And so let's cancel the, the licenses. Okay. And, and why do these two things have to be mutually exclusive? You know, you can put money towards developing, uh, you know, green energies and alternative energies, right. but you've got gas in the ground. And you see now with uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, how valuable that natural gas right. is to Europe and to, and to other countries. And, and it's part of your own national security to be energy independent for, for decades to come. And so she actually canceled those, those expiration licenses. Only in the last couple months, when there's pressure, you know, for other sources of gas in Europe, did she now restart those uh, Mm-hmm. start those those uh, energy licenses. You know, you had your your minister of transportation from the Labor Party who canceled uh, infrastructure projects in Judea and Samaria, because if you have road infrastructure projects in Judea and Samaria, ultimately, that's going to bring more people to Judea and Samaria. So we don't want right. that. So even though people are dying on the roads because you have these dangerous two lane roads in Judea and Samaria, you know, that, that you know, that that need to be widened and to be straightened, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, they, they just don't want projects in Judea and Samaria. So they cancel those projects. So there's a lot of different things. Uh, and then also like it's, it, it is security, but it's also social, which is to, to be bringing air parties into the government, you know, to be diverting more and more monies, uh, you know, towards, towards the Arab parties who can then hold the government hostage, uh, you know, and say, you know, we'll, we're going to leave this government. If you, mm. if you go and attack in Gaza, you know, or if mm. you don't, 
if you don't solve this issue for our constituency, yeah. then we're we're out. So you you brought like uh, you've given tremendous power. Well, I to think it, I think it's pretty clear, and we both would agree, and I imagine most of the viewers would agree that we don't want to have the leftist parties in the government. And the hope is that you know, in in a couple in whatever the beginning of November. We'll turn it back to what I would assume the majority of Israelis want. So the one person that we haven't mentioned here, of course, is Ayala Shaked. And some, I mean, she's had a busy week. What do you see happening with her now? Like, I don't even know. She's now in Bayou D, right? She was in, she was with Hauser in the, in, I can't even remember the names anymore. Now she's back in the Jewish home. Well, what's, right. uh, so, so yeah. Ayel Shaked, you know, has has really staked her political fortunes over the years to Naftali Bennett. And when Naftali Bennett He's saw out. the opportunity to become the prime minister. So, you know, she went along with him. You know, I, it was pretty clear that she would have uh, very willingly sat with Netanyahu in a right wing. Right. No, she made election. that clear. She was not but, happy this last year. Yeah. But. At the same time, she did not prevent Bennett from going with Lapid. She went with Bennett. She gave Bennett the prime minister's chair. So now what? Right. So, I mean, first of all, just taking the position for Bennett was one of the most selfish acts that he could have possibly taken. And he showed just how selfish he was by by basically resigning after his government fell apart and saying, I'm going to go take a vacation now. You know, it, it showed that he doesn't he doesn't believe that. In, in different values that only he can, that he can put forth, you know, he said, okay, fine. I, I got to be prime minister. I'm going to go sit on the sidelines. And, and what he did was he left the party, the Amina party that they had founded to Ayala Shaked. Now Ayala okay. Shaked was polling below the Knesset threshold because the voters are so upset. The people that voted for a right-wing party basically empowered the entire left wing to get into government and an Arab party. So she saw that she had no votes there. Um, there were two other right-wingers who had sat with Gidon Sar's party in the previous election. That they were Tzvi Hauser and, uh, and Yoaz Handel. And Sar himself, a, a former member of the Likud, was polling below the Knesset threshold. So, so Hauser and Handel knew that they weren't going to get in if they stayed with Sar. And then Sar decided to go sit together with uh, Benny Gantz and move over to the left to protect his own, his own seat. But yeah. Hauser and Handel, they didn't want to sit with Gantz because they didn't like him from their previous experience. And so they actually made a merger together with Shaked. So now you had Shaked's Yamina and this uh, Hauser Handel Derek Eretz faction. Uh, and they were once again polling below the threshold, but they also had a, a fundamental ideological difference because Hauser and Handel, who, who both come from uh, the Likud themselves, are part of this right wing anti BB movement. And when Shaked said, Well, I'm not going to make the same mistake that I made last time and, and block Netanyahu from forming a government. So Hauser and Hendel said, well, we want to block Netanyahu from forming a government. So ultimately they split. And now Shaked saw, well, now I'm polling at less than a seat. What am I going to do? And so she said, well, my original home was the Jewish home party. The Jewish home party is polling at about a seat. So they did some polling and they thought that maybe if they would run a great campaign and do some kind of a merger that they might, might be able to get past the Knesset threshold. But, but I must say that they uh, find themselves in a very, very weak position between mm-hmm. Likud, which is a center-right party, uh, and the party led by Smotrich and Ben-Gvir to the right. Um, and, uh, you know, Shaked, I think she's, uh, she's in this uh, black hole of irrelevance on the right. And, but what's, what's likely to happen if she stays in the race is that she may 
uh, take one or two seats worth of votes and, and throw them in the garbage. And, and it should be it should be noted that when Shaked led the what at that time was called the New Right Party, you could see it's the Yamina Party, the Jewish Home Party, the New Right Party, always changing their names uh, in right. in the second election campaign. They they had Shaked leading the party with Bennett as the number two because they did some internal polling and they thought that mm. it might turn out better. And they actually didn't pass the Knesset threshold. They would have been out of jobs, except that nobody was able to make a government and they went to another right. election oh, yeah. uh, and then they did squeeze by the threshold. Um, you know, so, you know, at this point, I'd say Shaked is not a very popular politician. I mean, she was a rising star just a few You're years right. ago, but I think she's made a lot of mistakes and uh, she tacked her political fortunes to the to the wrong candidate mm-hmm. in Naftali Bennett. And uh, mm-hmm. I think she finds herself right now w- without a political base. And uh, I think she's very likely and the whole right wing is likely to pay the price if she goes ahead in this election. Mm-hmm. It seems like when she has a job, like in the Justice Ministry or others, she does good things. But maybe her political savviness on who to join with is uh, is is not as on a high level as her actual abilities when she gets into a chair. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I, she yeah. could have looked. She could have read the tea leaves uh, during Bennett's during Bennett's uh, short reign as the prime minister, and she could have jumped ship and gone to the Likud, like in the middle. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> And if she right. would have been the one to crash a government, she would have found herself with a probably with a high ranking seat inside the Likud. And right now you have the other two defectors from Bennett's party, Amichai Shikli and Edith Silman, who both basically resigned their posts, ending the Bennett tenure. Essentially, they're both probably going to get nice seats with the Likud party in, in the coming elections. So mm-hmm. you know, if, if she would have seen what was going to happen, if she would have had a little bit of a uh, vision and foresight, she, she probably could have saved her position and gotten herself a, like a rising star seat in the Likud. But now she's, right. uh, she's well, there's others will say that it's nice that she's loyal and didn't do some of the games that some of the other people did. Except, so, that, you she know, wasn't, except that she wasn't loyal to her voters. right? Uh, so, yeah, it's all over the place. I mean, one of the questions that we have here is, you know, why do Israeli politicians do things that are detrimental to Israel, essentially? And um, it's a great question. It's one that is incredibly hurtful to those of us, I think, who live in Israel and vote in Israel, is that uh, like what, you know, what happened to public service? What happened to representing your constituency in the Knesset and not just worrying about yourself? And the problem, of course, I, I think that what it comes down to is a broken system, as mm-hmm. you so eloquently explained at the beginning of the webinar about how, you know, how you don't vote for a person, you vote for a party. And very often these parties are not beholden to anybody except the leader of the party, the strong man strong woman of the party who put them in place. Uh, the majority of the parties are like that. And uh, it is very frustrating. Uh, and this is called democracy. So, um, but, but still with all that, I have to say, because I, I do want to end this on a positive note, because we've, as Israelis, we're sitting here and fetching about the things that we would like to see fixed. There's still some amazing things happening in this country. I mean, you drive around, you see the infrastructure work is phenomenal. Um, one of my sons lives in Jerusalem He is at work in the heart of Tel Aviv now in 45 minutes between a combination of opening new tunnels and the high-speed train. And you see the roads going up everywhere and you see a lot of, you know, really like phenomenal things in terms of our, you know, our communications and our internet. And a lot of these things are really fantastic. And, you know, you and I both travel and this, you know, come back home and like even Ben Gurion Airport with all the craziness now after COVID and the airports and losing luggage, 
you know, I mean, I landed at Ben Gurion a few weeks ago. I was out of the airport in my car in 25 minutes from leaving the plane. So, you know, in many ways, which I, I could not believe. So, you know, in many ways, there is tremendous efficiency and a tremendous sense of things that are on the move. And also a sense of solidarity with all the frustration. We're all frustrated together. <laughs> so there's yeah. something to that. Yeah, also. I mean, I mean, I think I think it's very important. I mean, certainly the, the system is is broken and the system needs to be repaired. It's becoming an unsustainable system. And, and I I'm not sure that the system will look the same as it does now in 10 years. Like there might be radical changes to it and, and it needs that. But, oh, but Right. I mean, there's no incentive for a strong party to, to do that. The um, people would but, have to fix the system or the ones would have yeah. to be pay the price for the yeah, system being they, fixed. They, so, exactly. you know, but, but I do, do want, I do want to, I want to um, ta- tag along onto your point, which is that, uh, you know, this country, uh, despite everybody trying to in the political world, trying to create disunity here. Um, I think that the Israelis are, are incredible. Um, you know, there's a lot of momentum, like you said, infrastructure everywhere. The national bird of this country is the crane today, because if yeah. you just look up, you see cranes sure. everywhere with new buildings being built, uh, the road infrastructure, the, the train infrastructure, the natural gas infrastructure, which is now progressing. Um, and the sense of entrepreneurship, people here want to work. People here are working with right. very low unemployment. Right. Uh, and also we always score well on the happiness index. You know, people are happy crazy, huh? And, and people believe in the country and they believe in fighting for the country. And, and you also mentioned the, the highest birth rates in, in the rep in the West and not just in the West. I mean, in the entire world, basically, uh, you know, we have extraordinary, the, high, the yeah. only, the developed the only country with the yeah. developed country and the only country with an ascending birth rate and a higher than replacement birth rate. Um, so, I think while you see a lot of the infrastructure in the United States is crumbling and cracking and a lot of the foundations of what made Europe too. Right. And certainly Europe that make the United States and, and Europe, um, you know, losing their, their sense of values, uh, Israel mm-hmm. still figuring it out. And Israel is a country on the ascendancy. And it's, it's very clear to understand that. And the other thing is that even though our political system is broken, at least the mandate to fix it keeps returning to the right place, which is the voters. And people say, oh, right. how can you have uh, five elections mm-hmm. in two and a half years? And I say, well, that's better than the alternative. I mean, look yeah. at the Palestinian Authority where Mahmoud Abbas is serving in year 18 of his four year term. You know, like, you know, right. okay, we, we have problems. But when the, we have a problem in the political system, we say, you know what, voters, you're going to pick again and you're going to pick again and again and again until the system mm-hmm. stabilizes itself. And uh, it's better to be a hyper democracy than to be a dictatorship. Well, I mean, you know, just look at our neighbors. Lebanon is a completely failed state. Syria, if it exists, this is kind of a, you know, place for horrible human rights, uh, you know, against human rights things to happen and transporting weapons of mass destruction from one country to the other. And we've got Iran and Iraq and Jordan struggling. Egypt, nobody even hears from really anymore because they just are trying to keep their people fed. And really, when you look and, you know, and even further out, like to Turkey, and you look at a lot of countries are struggling now with leadership. And as you said, with crumbling infrastructure and birth rates that are low. And if you really look at the want to look ahead, crystal ball, 20 or 30 years, I think that we're going to be in a much better position than a lot of countries that are much, much older than we are and have already sorted out a lot of their issues. So, you know, we're catching Israel now with this window of a lot of things that are going on that are disturbing and a lot of threats that are around us. 
but these challenges can be opportunities and really with good leadership and even in the absence of phenomenal leadership with great people, which is what we have. Um, you know, this country can turn itself around like it has so many times. So still with all this mess, I couldn't live anywhere else. I know that you couldn't live anywhere else. I'm hoping that some of our viewers come to that same conclusion at some point for all the right reasons that this is, you know, this is Tel Shem's country. This is the place to be. And yeah. there's a lot to be done. But when you care about something, you get in there, like what you're doing, you know, in providing a new service. Tell us a little bit about JNS just in the last couple of minutes, Alex, please. Yeah, sure. What you've been doing. Yeah. Yeah, as, as we mentioned before, a lot of the news that's coming out of Israel, certainly in Hebrew, but also in English, is pushing a much for a much stronger progressive agenda. We all know about the mainstream media bias, you know, New York Times and CNN and BBC right. and Al Jazeera and others, you know, that don't give Israel a fair shake. But unfortunately, what a lot of the Jewish media outlets today are doing is actually giving a kosher stamp to this style of reporting by by pushing the same agendas. Um, and you know, if you look at the voting public in Israel, as we discussed earlier, most of this country is a, is a center-right country. And when you look at the people that actually love and support Israel in the United States and, and elsewhere around the world, they actually have a lot. Uh, they, they tend to lean more politically conservative in their viewpoints. and Conservative small c. Right, right. Right. So, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is to emerge as the and probably the only uh, high quality, uh, you know, news outlet providing, you know, fact-based reporting and informed analysis that represents the, the views and opinions and the, the outlook perspective of the majority of Israeli voters and the majority of people that support Israel from around the world. And that is really to project Israel as an emerging uh, diplomatic, military, economic, technological superpower in the Middle East. Um, and, not to give any wins to any of these ideas that Israel's uh, is a far right, oppressive, borderline apartheid state. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that we're providing the brand of news that uh, that most people are actually interested in. And that's in. And that's why our stats continue to go up, I think, faster than many of the other uh, news outlets that are out there. So certainly so how do uh, people get to you? Well, first, you should visit us at JNS.org. Uh, people should sign up to our daily newsletter. We're sending that to 100,000 people every day, and we have very, very high open rates and click-through rates, and people really like the newsletter. Um, it's free? It's free, yes. Yeah, okay. we're, no, we're, we're, we're a .org. We're, we're a not-for-profit company. Uh, we have, we're actually a donor-supported, a reader-supported news outlet because people out there understand that uh, it's so important to have this brand, the style of news uh, that is high quality, that that people, even if they don't agree with the political perspective, that they respect us and they're reading our reporting because they want to understand, you know, from mm -hmm. what, what other people are saying about what's going on in Israel. So they're reading. So people understand that it's very important to, to get this out there. And, and uh, you know, so we're not going to put a paywall up. Uh, you know, right. we would actually pay for people to read it if we can. And, and the, and the people, he's out kidding there, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we do. That's what I'm saying. We, we actually, you know, we're a syndication service and we provide, uh, in addition to our own website, you'll find our articles in, in almost every Jewish newspaper in America. Right. And, yeah. and we give that 
content to the Jewish newspapers at a, at a severe discount because many of these papers are not doing well financially. And we would prefer that they would run a JNS article on the subject than run an article by anybody else because we think that article is better. So we actually do mm-hmm. pay because we significantly sure. subsidize that content to get it out there that as many eyeballs as possible should read, should read JNS versus any other outlet. Mm-hmm. No, and I see, I mean, I'm on so many lists and I get news from so many different sources and inevitably I'm getting JNS, you know, reporting, not just from my JNS, but from somewhere else um, where people are reprinting it and you have some really awesome writers, uh, absolutely, and journalists and investigative reporters. I think you probably need a podcast section, but we can talk about it. <laughs> we're, we're working on it and we're just building a podcast studio now uh, as we speak. So yeah, we've coming soon. Meeting. Yeah. But anyway, really, uh, you're very much needed out there, like just, uh, you know, straight, truthful voice, uh, you know, for what's going on here, because um, there's just so much information coming at people from so many different ways. Hard to filter, hard to know what's true. Most people are not here. I mean, as a as a tour guide, I take people around and they're like, oh, my God, you come to Israel and it's nothing like you see that you anticipate. It's nothing like what you're reading in the news. And uh, and they all love the food. The food is awesome. How come no one knows how great the food is here? It really is. So, yeah, I mean, somebody I just read something. There's a whole culinary reawakening now around Gaza, like in that Gaza envelope and all these kibbutzim and moshavim. They are constantly, you know, under threat and 15 seconds to get into your shelter. They've like they've got all these culinary things going on and food trucks and different dessert shops. It's like what? I mean, people here just push back against threats and push back against being down by being more creative and, you know, getting people to come to these places for all kinds of reasons. It's wild. Just so not what you would think would be happening. It's really yeah, something and, else. And Eve, you know, like uh, also what you're doing is so important, not just touring people around the country and doing Thank the God. webinars and the podcasts. I mean, you're you're somebody that understands intellectually what's going on in this country, but you take that intellectual <laughs> understanding and then you process it through your heart and, and you, and it's, a, that just, is true. You're, you're able to do something that I, I think that uh, people want today and people need and, and to, to give that heartfelt connection and, and to at the same time, get the facts straight. It's, it's a really beautiful combination. Well, thank God. Look, we live, we live with all of the craziness. We still live in a free society with free speech. So you and I can get out there. We can say what we want to say. It doesn't resonate with everybody, but we can say our truth and how we're seeing it. And that is something that I will never take for granted because really all the countries around us and a good number of people who aren't even around us, you just have to have one little chat with someone who came from Ukraine or from Russia to find out how precious that is, that ability to be able to say your opinion and have this kind of a conversation. I don't think most of us in the West understand how rare this is in most places in the world. So I want to really appreciate that and hope that, you know, that never goes away. And if we all do with whatever strengths and gifts that we have, if we all do good things for Israel, for the Jewish people, for good people in the world at large, then we're going to be unstoppable. So there's no such thing as just sitting around everybody. You know, you got to take action one way or the other, you know, get involved politically, support One Israel Fund and the projects that we're doing, which are keeping people here in Judea and Samaria, uh, keeping people safe, keeping people happy, you know, getting the population to grow here, which in itself is a huge thing. The more people in Yudava Shamron, the less likely that they can have any kind of monkey business and, and things like we had, you know, with Gaza and uh, where, you know, where Jews are taken out of their homes. So we've got to make sure that never happens again in any way that we can. Alex, thank you so much. Any, uh, any last words? 
before we go? What do you think is going to be? You think we're going to head for new elections? And I won't hold you to this. Well, think we're going to have new elections in another six months. I think that there's a strong, a strong possibility that we're not going to get to, uh, we're not going to get to a solution here. Um, I, it doesn't look like Netanyahu is, has managed to do what it takes to get beyond that, that hump. And certainly all the other parliamentarians are going to do everything in their power to try to block him from becoming prime minister. That's their primary policy objective is to keep Netanyahu out of office. And if that's what <laughs> binds them, then uh, I think that there's a there's a likely chance that that could be uh, could be the same fate as last time. But but we'll see. Like I said, um, we'll you know, there's a lot of different factors. You know, which party crosses the threshold, which party doesn't, you know, who comes out to voter turnout, right? who doesn't. Um so let's just, you know, let's let's pray for good leadership in Israel and uh, hope for the best yes, possible yes. outcome. Absolutely. And, you know, you've had me a few times at the JNS, you know, the evening wrap up at the end of the elections. So that's always great. So, uh, I mean, it's fun, but I wouldn't mind taking like a five year break from that and actually having a stable government. Well, and not you know, having the two things that up. are really good for for a news outlet in terms of business are, are wars and elections. And I always say, aren't you lucky elections. then? Elections yeah. over wars, you know, so we'll, t- we'll take elections over wars. So Yeah, let's just take the war of words and not uh, not any other kind. Okay, Alex Traman, thank you so much for joining me Thanks tonight so on this you. webinar. Um, for those of you who heard us live, thank you for tuning in. This will be available within like the next 24, 36 hours. Uh, those of you who are signed up to the One Israel uh, newsletters, you will get it in your mailbox. You can also find it on the website. And please share it. And you can go and look in our library and see some of the other webinars we've had um, with some really incredible people, uh, including people who are now ex-prime ministers. So it never gets boring here. We really try and stay on top of everything and educate you as to what is happening in Israel with real people, real time, you know, uh, people who are really feet on the ground, very involved with what's happening here because it is never boring and there's always something going on. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks to Shauna for being the lady behind the scenes. Eve Harrow for When Israel Fund. Uh, take care everybody and Shana Tova. May it be, may 5783 be the best year yet for all of us personally. And of course, the Jewish people and for Israel as a whole. Take care everybody and goodbye for now. Drama in the Israeli parliament. Israel's caretaker Prime Minister Yair Lapid. Avigdor Lieberman. Israel's Shas Party. Knesset member Itamar Ben-Gvir. Benjamin Netanyahu. Israeli elections 2022. Hear in-depth analysis, interviews, and historical perspective. Get the real story on the Knesset elections on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.